We continue in our study in the book of Exodus, specifically in that portion of Exodus with the Ten Commandments. As has been the case now for some weeks, our text this evening is short. So it is a text that not only shall I read to you, you will be able to memorize it as I read it to you. It's so short. But I would encourage you still to give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is indeed inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. You shall not murder. That is, of course, the sixth commandment that has now been read in our hearing. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing upon our text this evening. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us. When we come to a portion of your word that seems familiar, that seems clear and simple, Lord, teach us that we have not begun to plumb the depths of your word. That your word is full of wonder and glory. And that as we study your word this evening, we would know better who you are. We would know better what duty you require of us. And that you would bless us and encourage us from your word. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this evening, as I said, we have come to a very short text. It's a text that we are tempted to come to and to make a shortcut. To kind of go right to the end. We know what the answer is with this. There can't be much to expound on such a short text on the subject that seems so clear. But I want you to beware of shortcuts. I had an incident when I was younger. My, my children, especially my boys, love this story because it shows their old man in his youth and in his foolishness. I remember being at my parents' home as my father was mowing the lawn. And in those days, you mowed the lawn and the, the clippings went out through a side chute. And my job to help my dad, I was probably nine or ten at the time, was to rake up the clippings into piles and to help him put them in a plastic bag. And as I looked at this, I thought, this is an awful lot of work. And then I had an idea. You know, these are really lush and green clippings. Wouldn't they look great spread out amongst the flower beds and in the areas around the shrubs? It would just cause the whole yard to pop with color. My father will love this. And so I dutifully spent some time spreading the clippings all around. Was very proud of myself that not only was it looking good, I'd save myself work in the process. Well, you already know the end of this story and the problem with it. Because when you leave grass clippings out for just a short period of time, they don't remain lush and green. They're brown and dead and curled up. You see, I tried to take a shortcut to the end. And I learned 
but that is not the wisest way to do things. So it is with the Ten Commandments in general, but I think specifically here with this commandment. Let us not rush to the end. Let's take our time. Let's think about this command and how it applies to us. Because I think when we do, we will find that this is the most cutting commandment yet that applies to our lives. Don't look at this command and say, Pastor, I haven't shot anybody this week. I don't remember knifing someone last month. I don't see how this commandment could apply to me. Jesus takes this command and he applies it to our lives and our hearts. Let's begin then by looking, as we often have, at the commandments definition. What does this command mean, these few words? This is the shortest of the commandments. In Hebrew, it's only two words. The equivalent of no murder. As a matter of fact, the sixth and the seventh and the eighth commandments are each just two words. As brief as they get, if you ask even the youngest among us, what's the shortest verse in the Bible, they will remind you, Jesus wept. Everyone starts by memorizing that verse because it's so short. That's how short this verse is in the Hebrew. But even though it's short, it does pack a punch. One of those words, no, is the strongest way to say no in the Hebrew language. It may surprise you to realize that there are several ways to express a negative from a mild negation to an absolute prohibition. And that's what we have here. There is no loophole provided for. There is no uh, gradation. This is the strongest possible negation that we can see. At first glance, there would appear to be no exceptions to this commandment. That in of itself can be confusing to us. For many of us are familiar with this commandment from the authorized version and its translation. You shall not kill. And we're confused. Because it doesn't seem to admit of exceptions. And yet it also doesn't seem to make sense that all killing is prohibited. And that's because... I think our translation before us this evening, you shall not murder, is a more accurate expression of the Hebrew language. Now, I don't think that the authorized version is a mistranslation. When that translation was done, that was in their minds. But this makes it clear for you and for me that it's talking about the unlawful or the immoral killing of a person. This does not include killing in battle, for example, or execution for a crime, or killing in self-defense. And, and part of our problem is, is that we live, thankfully, in a day and age in which death and killing and murder does not happen as common as it did in the days of the Old or the New Testament. Now, I realize that there are murders that seem to fill our headlines, we do realize that when we are a nation of more than 300 million people, 20 or 30 or even 100 deaths are not exactly common 
in that size of a nation. And one of the ways that we can understand this is we typically, when we speak of killing someone, we use the word kill. But in both Greek in the New Testament and Hebrew in the Old Testament and even in Latin, there are many, many words for kill. I think that's because most of the literature that has come down to us from the classical period involves battles and, and murders and crimes and these sorts of histories. So there are a whole panoply of words to choose from. Six, eight, ten words that mean kill or murder or some gradation thereof. Not so in our language. But this one particular word in the Hebrew is used 46 times in the Old Testament. And in every single instance, but one doubtful occasion, it refers to a man killing unlawfully another man. The text is clear. This is about murder. And this includes our concepts in our world of both manslaughter, which is the killing of someone perhaps unintentionally, but unlawfully, something you will go to jail for. Perhaps there are extenuating circumstances that lessen the nature of guilt, but you are still found guilty. And also murder, that is the intentional or premeditated killing of someone. That's the closest that we get to gradation within this. Now, this commandment is evidence that death is not a part of the created order. You know, we talk about someone dying of natural causes. And that's a lie. Death is not natural. Death is not native to creation. Death is not designed by God. Decay and death are not a part of the created order and will not be a part of the created order in glory. But death entered in by sin. Through Adam's sin and through the sin of his progeny, death is now everywhere around us. Not just that we grow old and die, not just that we become diseased and die, but that we take each other's lives. We cut life short. It's all too common in every human society, in every part of the globe. C.S. Lewis once commented that one of the universal laws of every culture, in every place, at every time, was a prohibition against murder. Because without that, there would be chaos. Death would reign. Now, just because something is done without a specific intent to take life does not make it okay, does not make it proper. We don't avoid violating this commandment simply by taking efforts to avoid killing others. No, God desires that we take forethought, that we think about our actions, how they will affect others, that we not take life and that we, will see in a bit, preserve life also. Now, what does this commandment not refer to? I think it doesn't refer to several things. It does not refer to killing 
in war. How do we know that? Well, God commands Joshua to fight, to kill, to conquer. And this commandment is not just an order for you and for me. This commandment reflects God's nature. And so if we were to say that, well, in some instances it applies and in other instances it doesn't, we would be changing the nature of God. And we can't do that. So it doesn't refer to the just killing in war. It also does not refer to capital punishment. I know there are some in our society that view any form of killing as being a violation of this law. And it's, it's interesting to me that those who are loudest about the rights of those who are convicted criminals and that they should not pay with their life are often those who are loudest in saying that the innocents in the womb can have their lives taken from them. We know from the scripture that this doesn't apply to capital punishment. Because if it does, then otherwise God's commandments make no sense. For example, just in the next chapter, in Exodus 21, verse 12, we read the following. Whoever strikes a man that he dies shall be put to death. Now, if we were to say that putting someone to death violates the sixth commandment, we end up in a conundrum. Someone murders someone, and so God orders that they be put to death. And then, of course, that person has put someone else to death, so they must be put to death. But yet, a second person has now put that first person to death, and so we must go back now to a third person to put the second person to death, and so on and so on. It's absurd. That can't be what this means. God even reiterates this in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 17. He says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. So this doesn't refer to killing in war and battle. It doesn't refer to capital punishment. And it doesn't refer also to self-defense. There are a number of instances in the scripture in which a man is justified in defending himself and his family against attack. And if that defense results in a death, he is not found guilty of that person's blood. That's not what is encompassed in this term, murder. So that's the, the definition of this commandment. But I think we need to probe a little bit deeper to look past the definition, and to go to the commandment's intention. What does God intend by this commandment? Why has he given us this commandment? Well, I think God wants us to think generally, not specifically here. He wants us to think generally about death and its nature with respect to his creation. This command prohibits us from thinking that death is good or that death is acceptable or that death is convenient. Far too often in our culture, we view death as something that is convenient to aid us. Wouldn't it be good if this person were just gone? Can't we just let this person die? 
But that's not how we're to think about life, God says. Because man has been made in the image of God. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Because man is made in the image of God, all men, men, women, and children, have inherent value. No matter who they are, how old they are, how capable they are, they all have inherent value. Our value does not come from our usefulness, or our intelligence, or our athletic ability, or our economic value. Our value comes from being made in the image of God. It's what separates humanity from all the rest of creation. And this commandment highlights that for us. You see, this commandment speaks about the murder of people. God doesn't know anything of however many commandments PETA puts forward. A sheep is not a cow, is not a dog, is not a person. Mankind is completely separate and other from all of creation. It is made in the image of God. And because of that, we all as human beings are under the authority of God. God is the author of life. And so God is also the authority of death. Our society seems to have completely forgotten this. Think about the way that our society views three great problems with respect to death. First, suicide. Suicide is far too often presented as an option, as brokenness in a person, as an understandable reaction to the difficulties and trials of life. Now, do you know what the word suicide actually means? It comes from two Greek words that, or excuse me, Latin words that mean literally to kill oneself, to murder one's self. There is never an instance in which suicide is the answer. No matter how depressed you are, no matter how discouraged you are, no matter how much pain you're in, there's always hope. You can always go to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can always find someone to talk to. We should never use suicide as an option or a hope for anyone else. And what that means is, we are required to be there for others who are discouraged and depressed. To encourage them. To lift them up. To come alongside them. To weep with them as they weep. We can't just tell them what they are supposed to do. We must aid them in their time of strife. A second plague on our nation is abortion. It's become so common that we don't even really think about the raw numbers. The tens of millions of human beings, not fetuses, not embryos, people with souls who have been murdered. And murdered in the way most heinously. Murdered by those who should love them most their mothers, and their fathers. Murdered in what should be the safest place in the world, their mother's womb. 
And yet our nation is in a small category of countries that celebrates abortion, that makes it commonplace for any reason at all. Do you know that our nation has more in common with North Korea on the issue of abortion than it does with other civilized nations in the world? We have abortion laws that are more similar to North Korea than to Poland or countries in South America or countries in Africa or countries in Asia. It's a plague that sweeps over our nation and we have become numb to it. Perhaps we think about it once a year on Sanctity of Life Sunday or when we see the March for Life in Washington. But I tell you that we are a nation under judgment for this plague. God tells us that he does not countenance the murder of widows, orphans, children. The most vulnerable among us are killed simply because we want to have more money or more freedom. This cuts directly against this commandment that God has given to us. Would that the church of Jesus Christ would stand in our nation and say, no more! We speak against this. And of course, this again requires a positive act on our part. We cannot simply prevent others from having abortions. We must give them opportunities to show their respect for life. We must support mothers in need. We must support children who need to be adopted, who need homes, who need foster care. And the church needs to be at the forefront of this battle. If we take God's word seriously, we have to be at the forefront. And then sadly, there is a third instance of death reigning in our nation. It's euthanasia. We look at people who are older and we say, they're past their usefulness. We look at those who are frail or disabled and we say, they'll never serve much good. They're using up resources. They're not efficient. Let's just simply get them out of the way. Now we, by God's grace, have not reached the stage in our nation that other nations in the world have reached. Nations in Europe where young infants and the elderly can be put to death against their will when doctors or relatives deem them unworthy. But I don't think that day is far off. And so we must continue to fight for life on this front as well. We must stand for laws that protect the vulnerable. We must speak out about the value of our elderly, of those who are in need, that they have value to us, that they are made in God's image, that we love them, that we cherish them, and that we are blessed by them. They are not a burden. They are God's gift to us. You see, we must understand that we are under the authority of God. We cannot take the law in our own hands. We cannot say that we know better than God 
who should live and who should die. But there's another aspect of a culture of death that's found in our country. And sadly, its chief seat is in the church. And that's murdering the soul. You see, people in our nation delight in pointing others away from Jesus Christ. In every church and in every pulpit where Jesus is not proclaimed, where other things are made more prominent than Jesus Christ and salvation by faith alone, the murder of souls is present. May it never be found at Christ church that we deemed societal change or laws or culture more important than Jesus. May we never be guilty of murdering the souls of our neighbors, our co-workers, and our family members. But I'm sure you are also ready for this. Each of these commandments we have seen are to be interpreted where there is something prohibited, the contrary duty is also required. And that's also true in this commandment as well. We are not to murder, we are not to promote a culture of death, but what we are required to do is to promote a culture of life. We are to protect and look out for others. One of the things that I learned in law school is that in many states, there are what are called Good Samaritan Laws. And what they basically mean are this. You are not required by law to risk your life to rescue someone. If someone is drowning and you don't jump into the lake to save you, you are not guilty of murder. But I don't think that's the Christian way to think about this. Imagine this, for example. If a Christian sees someone drowning in a lake, but he realizes he's just bought an expensive new suit. And he really doesn't want to jump in and ruin a $1,000 suit. He's violating this commandment. Because a person is more important than money. More important than a suit. And we must promote a culture of life. We must be willing even to risk our own lives to promote this culture of life. This is woven throughout the Bible. There's a wonderful example of this in a law that for many of us makes no sense at all. One of the laws given to Old Testament Israel was that they were to build parapets on their roofs. Now you wonder, what's a parapet? and Why am I putting it on my roof? Well... A parapet is basically a fence on the edge of your roof. A railing, if you will. Now, why would you put that on your roof? Well, if you lived in ancient Israel, your roof was your outdoor patio. You lived on your roof. You used it as an area to live on. Now, of course, there's a danger inherent in living on your roof, especially in times before electric lighting. Someone could be on the roof and not paying attention. And what happens when you come to the edge of a roof? Well, you fall off. Now, it's one thing to fall off a sidewalk. It's another thing to fall off of a roof. 
And so God made it a law for all in Israel that they were to take care for the lives of their family and their guests to build parapets on their roof so that people would be safe. You see how even in that small detail, in a way that we might not at first glance link to this commandment, God is promoting a culture of life. That's what he's doing for us. You see, this commandment reminds us that we cannot be indifferent to life. Indifference is not possible for the Christian. Just because we lack all authority does not mean that we ignore death around us or that we fail to preserve life. I know that neither you nor I can pass a law tomorrow banning all abortions. But that doesn't make us indifferent. We still must speak out. We still must encourage others. That's what we're called to. We have a moral authority given to us by God. The church and Christians are a prophetic voice in our culture for life. The same is true with spiritual life. Evangelism and instruction in God's word are required of Christians. Now, I will be the first to tell you that we cannot make others believe the gospel. You cannot save people yourself by your words. But we are to do what is in our power. What God has given to us to do, as we have opportunity to speak the gospel, to encourage others in the gospel, to bring God's word to bear on their conscience. But this also applies to you. You must look after your own spiritual life, just as you are not physically to take your own life by suicide. This commandment means that you are not to take your own spiritual life lackadaisically. Far too many of us are indifferent to our own growth in Christ. We don't spend the time in prayer that we should. We don't memorize the scripture as we should. We don't feed upon God's word as we should. And this commandment tells you that you are to take this with grave seriousness. That your spiritual life is important. Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is a command that comes to each and every one of us. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for elders. It's not just for Sunday school teachers. It's for fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, all Christians. And so the Christian today must speak out in favor of a culture of life. We must speak out. Help the helpless. Help the hopeless. And if that means we risk our standing in society, so be it. We must stand with God. Well, we've seen the commandments definition. And we've seen the commandment's intention. Thirdly and finally, I'd like us to look briefly at the commandment's reach. That this commandment reaches beyond the hand to the heart. Jesus says this for us 
in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Now you will remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not giving us a new law. Jesus does not begin the Sermon on the Mount by saying, you know, all of that Old Testament stuff, you can just forget about it. I've got a new and improved version. Just listen to me now. No, what Jesus is doing is giving us the correct view that we should have of the Old Testament law. You may remember several weeks ago when we looked at the fourth commandment, we compared the fourth commandment to a piece of furniture, of antique furniture that had been layered over with gunk and with paint. And then in order to see the glory of the fourth commandment, we had to strip away that paint. We had to break out the varnish. We had to clean it off. And that's what Jesus does with the Old Testament law. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had interpreted the law in a way that benefited them. They had layered man-made after man-made commandment over God's word. They had parsed and cut simple commands like this sixth commandment. And so what Jesus is doing is he is filling the commandment back full of meaning. And so what he does here in chapter 5, verse 21, we read, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's telling you, don't think you can keep the sixth commandment. I hope this is a theme you've seen from every one of the commandments. When we first glance at them, we say, well, I can do that. Maybe it takes a bit of effort, but I can manage that. And of course, this one seems very easy. I just have to manage to make it through the day without hitting someone in the head with a club. I think I can manage that. But Jesus says, you're being too simplistic with this commandment. Don't just think about your hands, think about your heart. You may not have physically assaulted someone. But how have you treated your neighbor? What have you said to that person in the vehicle next to you on the highway? Isn't it amazing what we will say when we are sure the other person can't hear us? Have you ever had an instance in which you've been annoyed or angry with someone? And you didn't realize how close they were or how loud you were being. And you spoke out and their head whips around and you realize, oh, I've been caught. And immediately you're ashamed and you blush and you want to slink away because you know what you've done is wrong. It's the reason why our online phenomenon is so insane. People will type any number of things that they would never say to a person's face. Because they think they can be anonymous. They think they can hold them at arm's length. And what Jesus says is, your heart is speaking volumes. Don't be angry without cause. Now that's an important qualifier because... Jesus doesn't mean that there should be no anger in our hearts ever. We know this because of the scriptures. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he actually tells us to be angry. 
and do not sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, I don't think we have time to unpack all of that, but in its summation, what it means is, is that we can have righteous anger about things that God is angry about. When we see sin before us, when we see injustice happening, we can be angry about that, but we are not to sin. Now, we know for a fact that you can be angry without sinning because the Bible tells us that Jesus was angry in Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, Mark tells us that Jesus is angry. And the interesting thing is, is that Mark uses the same word for anger that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5. So it's not even that we're parsing Greek verbs here. It's context that's critical. Jesus is angry because those around him are seeking to pervert God's law and God's holiness. And that angers him. God is angry, the scripture tells us, with sin all day long. When we see sin, it's appropriate to be angry. But far too often in my life, and I would assume in yours as well, our anger is not about sin and God's righteousness. Our anger is about our convenience. That we have to wait. That things don't go for us the way we want them to. That we are somehow inconvenienced. And what this commandment tells us is we are breaking God's law when we have that kind of anger in our hearts. We see this, for example, in the Pharisees' reactions. The Pharisees in John chapter 7 and chapter 8 are angry, and they are sinning because their anger leads them to thoughts of murder. You see, Jesus' anger upholds God's holiness. The Pharisees' anger brings them immediately to a desire to murder Jesus. Not only does the mouth speak out from the heart, the hands act from the heart. But it's not just anger that we need to be concerned about. I think this commandment also admonishes us not to nourish bitterness in our hearts. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. We should not know bitterness in our heart. When a root of bitterness remains in us, it leads to hatred. And hatred leads to thoughts of murder and violence, whether they remain on our lips or in our minds or our hands take action. All are sin. And what that means then for you and for me is if we are not to be bitter is that we must be a forgiving people. You know, I think often we think that one of the hardest things to do is to ask others for forgiveness. I think because we're sinners, it's actually harder to grant forgiveness. Real and true forgiveness. 
You know, when God forgives your sins, the Bible tells us that he takes your sins and they are cast as far away as the east is from the west. Spoiler alert, the east and the west never meet. The Bible is saying that this is as far apart as possible. And yet we, when we say we forgive someone, don't we often put it in a little portion of our heart to break it out in case of emergency? If someone hurts us again, if someone needs to be put in their place, we just break that out. Do you remember five years, three months, two weeks, and two days ago when you said, we keep score. Could you imagine if God kept score with you? You'd never get a word in edgewise. It is from the heart that our actions come. That's why John tells us in 1 John 3, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life. Now think about that. I think we would easily say that the worst of all murderers, serial killers, dictators and despots who murder millions, that they don't inherit eternal life. But do we think about our own lives if we nourish hatred in our hearts? The Bible tells us that we are murderers. We are breaking this command. We must check our own hearts. Finally, in conclusion, three brief thoughts for us to think about about this commandment and its application in our lives. First, with respect to our society. Are you doing everything you can with the gifts that God has given to you to promote a culture of life? Now, that means different things for different people among us. It's a far different thing for a pastor than for a nurse or a doctor or than an accountant. But God has given you gifts. Are you using those gifts to promote a culture of life? In the spheres of influence that God has given to you. You may not be in Congress. You're not a Supreme Court justice. But you do have friends and neighbors. You do have co-workers. You do have students who are around you all the time. Are you using the gifts that God has given to you to stand for life? Secondly, in the church. Do you promote life in the church? Do you teach God's word when you are given an opportunity? Are you zealous for teaching God's word when given the opportunity? Are you prepared? Are you eager? Do you seek to lift others up through God's word and prayer? We must promote life not just out there, but we must promote life in here as well. And then thirdly, in your own heart. Are you rooting out anger and bitterness that you have in your life? Are you being reconciled with others? Are you initiating reconciliation? Because that's what this commandment says to you. You can't be passive. 
You don't stand by while others do the hard work of reconciliation. Now, we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as followers of the living God, we are to reach out to others, not to parse who is most at fault, but rather we are to lead with grace, with forgiveness, and repentance. What God wants from us is a completely transformed life. I like to think that a commentary on the Sixth Commandment is found in Romans 5. Paul tells us that in Adam, all die. But in Christ, all are made alive. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we find life. He is the life. As you follow Jesus this week, Make that known to those around you. That you stand with Jesus. That you stand for life. Let's pray.